So I'm standing over there thinking uh, there's probably some folks that are first-time visitors here that wonder why in the world do people stand in church and raise their hands? That's probably a fair question. So here is my 30-second thought on it. Here's my explanation. Started out this morning and I said, you know, the Viking skull chant, right? You, sh- you show the U.S. Bank Stadium and all the purple and gold doing the, right? And, w- and why do we do it up here? How come we don't just do, right? Because you want the team to know you're there. Right? You, you're adoring the team. You're, you're praising the team. You're, you're there as a fan. And, and so we do this. The wave. Remember the wave used to be the thing? But you don't do the wave by sitting down and standing up like this. What do you do? You stand up and your hands go in the air. Here's the deal. The hands are just a way that, that we let people know that we're there. And, and, and in church, not that it's the only way or the right way to worship, but for folks that raise their hands up, what they're really doing is just saying, you know what, I'm not worried about what other think, people think about me, God. I'm worried about what you think about me. There's, just, there's a freedom and a recognition that God is there. If the Vikings deserve us to cheer, and they do, because I haven't been easy on them all year, the Vikings do, surely how much more does God deserve us to cheer and to worship and praise Him, right? And so not that I am saying to worship around here, you have to do the skull thing or the wave, but I'm saying for the folks that do, maybe you have a little understanding of why now, that it really is just recognition of how incredibly awesome our God really is. With that, let's pray. Gracious God, thank you for today. Thank you for the warmer weather. Thank you for who you are. God, it's easy to to give you thanks for all the things that you do for us, but just for a moment, we want to pause and just say thank you for who you are, that you are God, that you are there, you are unchanging yesterday, today, and forever. God, thank you that everything that happens in this world, everything that happens in our life is not outside of your grasp and is all in your hands. And God, we give you thanks for that. We thank you that we can know that, that we have that confidence. God, thank you for the opportunity for us to gather this morning. Thank you for everyone that you have brought here today. We come from so many different places. We have had so many different kinds of weeks. Our emotions are all over the board. But God, you brought us all here together today in this time, in this place. And we know, God, that it's not... It's not by coincidence or chance, but you've brought, brought us here for a purpose. We know that you're a God who makes divine appointments with your people. So God, we ask this morning that that divine appointment that you have made with each one of us, even if it's our very first time here, that you would make known to us. And so we ask, God, once again, that your Holy Spirit would be powerfully present in this place, that he would be here this morning as we know he is all of the time. And God, we ask that whatever it is that you have for us this morning, whether it's for ones of us individually, if it's for us as a congregation, whatever it is, God, we ask that you would make that known to us through the power of your Holy Spirit. And for everyone who is willing to have him alive and at work in their lives, we ask that he would fill us just to overflowing with your goodness. God, we thank you for this time, and we ask that all that we do in our worship, in the time that we spend in prayer with you, in the time that we talk to each other, in the time that we look at your word, God, we pray that all of it is to your greatest glory to help accomplish what it is that you have put us here to do. In Jesus' name, amen. We're going to continue to worship, and if you should feel so moved to give God some version of your old skull chant, feel free to do that. This is my prayer in the fire 
exalted, the King is exalted and high. And I will praise Him, He is exalted, forever exalted and high. We'll praise His name. Father, we're crying out 
God, we, we gather now and we're going to once again look at your word, which is an odd thing to do in our world, to get a bunch of people together to talk about you. Our world just doesn't understand that. But God, we know that, that in your word there is life. And we know that we make decisions all the time that are against your will for us. We know that we do things that we call sin, but quite frankly, they just break your heart. And so God, as we gather and as we look at your word, as we look at the hope that we have in you and in what Jesus has done for us, God, open our ears, open our hearts, open our minds that maybe all the reasons that we would come up with, that we would keep ourselves from you, God, just break through all of those so that we would be able to see you for who you are, for how much you love us. So God, as we open your word now, we just ask that you would speak to us. In Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated. So this why do we about preaching has been kind of getting to me lately. It is so unusual. I talked about this a couple of weeks ago. So unusual that we would get together and just listen to a speech. Because, you know, that's what we understand. In politics, we get speeches. And so what is the point? What is the point of this time? You've all given up time that you have to be here today. It isn't because I'm smart. It isn't even because that I study or I know the Bible better than you because a lot of you know your Bible a lot better than I ever will. What it is is because when we stop and we open God's Word, there is a message for us in there every day that if we're willing to hear it, if we're willing to just accept it, it can literally change our lives. It can transform us in our thinking and our acting and our living and all of it. And so what is the point of taking this time? I said a few years ago, you know, around here we preach for salvation, your salvation. We preach so that you know that God created you for a purpose and God created a home for you in heaven for all eternity. And there's some decisions that we have to make in life with regard to whether or not you're going to accept that offer. And so why do we preach? So that you can get to know God better, so that I can get to know God better, so that our relationship with Him can be made more clear, which then gives us a more clear path through life. Jesus, in this Gospel of John where we're at right now, is right down to the end. Right down to the end with His disciples. And and He is trying so hard to leave them with words that they're going to be able to hold on to after He's gone. And what He's finding, and we're going to see it in just a moment, what He's finding is that He's got a bunch of guys that just don't get it. He's had three years with them. And I have to believe at this point, there's moments where Jesus has got to be going, People! 
I've been teaching you for three years. I've told you this day was coming. And they keep going, nope, don't want that. Jesus, let's come up with something else. Well, for us, part of what we need to do is make sure that we understand the Bible because we're going to face days very similar to what these guys are facing where they're not going to like what, they don't like what's coming next and we're not necessarily going to like what's coming next. Maybe we're not real happy with the choice we've made and the situation that we're in. Jesus is speaking directly into that today. And so, even if this is the first time that you've ever heard anything from the Bible, this is Jesus, the Son of God, speaking to His disciples a message for you and I today as well. So what He says in the Gospel of John, the 16th chapter, starting in the 16th verse. He says, A little while and you will see Me no longer, and again a little while and you will see Me. And they've got to be going, Huh? So some of his disciples said to one another, What is this that he says to us, A little while and you will not see me, and again a little while and you will see me, and because I'm going to the Father. So what they're saying is, What does he mean by a little while? We don't know what he's talking about. First thing we've got to understand about God is that God sees a whole lot more of the world than we see. We see this little tiny view that, that is our life and, and the people in the world around us. God created all of it. God is well aware of everything that's going on. And so Jesus is speaking from a perspective that He knows what we do not know. No matter what things might look like, even the most difficult of days, the most challenging of circumstances, the most I'm never going to live through this moment thing you can face is only going to last a little while. Because in the big scheme of things, our time on earth only lasts a little while. Eternity. Now that's a long time. And so one of the things that we've got to accept about God is that God does not see the limited view of our lives that we see. God sees the entirety of everything. Everything that's happened to you before, everything that's happening to you right now, all of the things and the, ha- and the people that are happening around you, and everything that's about to happen. God is aware of all of that. We're aware of our situation in the moment. We're aware of what we did to get here. Because of that, we tend to go into a little panic because more often than not, we realize, okay, I deserve this one. But God sees the entire picture and He's got a response for us. Isaiah 55 says this, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. So I want to ask you this. Do you want to trust when you get into a difficult situation? Do you want to trust what you think you know or do you want to trust the God who created you? Because what we end up doing is we end up trusting what we think we know and what we think we can do. And God says right there that my thoughts and my ways are not yours. They are higher than anything you can imagine. We should take comfort that God knows more than we do. But more often than not, what we end up doing is saying, okay, God, I'm going to throw out a 911 prayer and then I'm going to fix it. Am I right? I'm going to throw it a 911 prayer because you might listen, you might do something, but in the meantime, I know I've got to take care of it on my own. No, you don't. Now, God may use you as a part of the answer to your prayer, but God's not asking you to take care of it on your own. That would completely take away the whole point and the purpose of prayer. So verse 19, Jesus knew that they wanted to ask Him. So He says this, Is this what you're asking yourselves, what I meant by saying a little while and you'll not see Me, and again a little while and you will? See, the disciples didn't have something that we have because this is confusing and they're confused. 
What we've got is the entirety of the New Testament to help us make sense of this. What they had was three years with Jesus, and right now they're on panic mode. Because everything is pressing in around them. Jesus is in trouble. They're afraid they're in trouble. He's already told them that he's going to lose his life. They're afraid they're going to lose their lives. They don't have the pages of the New Testament to help them understand that Jesus was about to die. He was going to go away. He was going to come back again. And then he was going to go back to heaven. We look at it and go, well, it's not that big a deal. It all works out in the end, guys. Don't worry. What they're hearing is he's going to go away. Then he's going to come back. Then he's going to go away again. And all they're thinking is, what about me? I'm on my own. What about me? You, you, you stir up all of this mess. What about me? They know, we know that they've been told by Jesus what's going to come, but they're still confused and that they're not accepting what He's saying to them. And that's so true of you and I. We're told by God who to be, what to do, how to be obedient, how to be a disciple of Jesus. But because we either don't understand it or don't like it, we do it our own way. And on that note, we can understand where these disciples are. Verse 20, 20, Jesus goes on. He says, Truly, truly, I say to you, you will weep and lament. Put yourself into the picture now. This is something we've all done. You will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will be turned into joy. The disciples are no different than you and I. They're ordinary guys. They're ordinary guys that had jobs and they left the jobs to follow Jesus. They had happy days and they had sad days. They had days where they felt like the world was about to end. And they had days that felt like it was the most incredible thing in the world. Just imagine the roller coaster they've been on, seeing the miracles up close and personal, hearing the stories, and now they're with Jesus saying, I'm about to die and go away. They are running the full gamut of emotions, just like you and I do. See, what Jesus is saying is that He knows that they're, going to, they're about to cry uncontrollably and reach the depths of sadness and the depths of sorrow that comes only from experiencing a tremendous loss. He's telling them, and even in the midst of all that, to make it even worse, the world around you is going to rejoice. The world around you is going to rejoice in your sadness. They're going to celebrate for the very same reason that you are filled with tears. As if their sorrow isn't enough, the people are going to celebrate when they're on the verge of a meltdown. They're going to be filled with sorrow. But then Jesus goes on and He says, but your sorrow will turn to joy. There's no way that they understand that. There's no way that they can comprehend that. How is that even possible? So to help them understand, He gives them an analogy. And it takes a little bit of unraveling to grasp. Because he goes on in verse 21 and he says this. And now, a lot of people say, well, the Bible doesn't really make sense to me if you're a woman because it's always talking about he and the men. Well, this one, ladies, this is your catch-up moment. Jesus understands as people that we go through life having to help identify and, and to relate to each other. And so he goes on in verse 21 and he says, when a woman is giving birth, she has sorrow because her hour has come. But when she's delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish for joy that a human being has been born into the world. Ladies, there you go. It all makes sense, right? No more questions? Guys, you got it? We can end it here and go start making hors d'oeuvres for the Vikings game? Disciples didn't get it either. See, in most circumstances... In most circumstances, a woman who's about to give birth has chosen that situation. 
She's there because of a decision that she's made. So then the word sorrow here, we've got to take a look at what does it mean in the original Greek. Another word to help understand that original word is pain. If you've ever given birth to a child, you understand pain maybe a little bit more than sorrow. Jesus says the pain is there. If you've given birth, you know what Jesus is talking about probably better than the rest of us, certainly more so than us men. Remember, Jesus Himself even asked if there was another way. When He was right at the verge and He knew that He was going to go to the cross, the authorities were pressing in. He knew what was going to happen and and His prayer basically was, God, if there's any other way that You can accomplish Your purpose other than by me having to die, please do it. Phrase is, take this cup from me. But you know what? God said, no, this is the way that it's got to be. Because Jesus understood God had a bigger plan. Jesus trusted in God's bigger plan and in God's will. So back to this woman giving birth. She's in pain for a little while, but as soon as the baby arrives, she's not only no longer in pain, Jesus says she no longer remembers the pain. It isn't just that the pain ends, but the pain is no longer remembered. That sorrow, that anguish is no longer there, and in its place is joy that her child has arrived. What Jesus is saying is that godly joy literally wipes out the memory of pain. So I'm going to just say something that's way out of my realm of understanding. But ladies, if you've had more than one child, you know this is true. If you've chosen to have two children, or three, or four, or however many, you understand that that pain is replaced by the joy of that child, and that pain is completely forgotten, and all that you have is the joy of that baby. Jesus is trying to help us understand in a way that we can grasp. The trouble is, it still is difficult. I keep looking at it and I'm, I'm trying to understand exactly what's going on here. And I, when I grabbed hold of it, I, I think it's pretty much an awesome thing. The sorrow, the pain, the anguish of childbirth are very real things. I'm sure that when you're in the moment of it, it feels like it's going to last forever. I'm sure the question is, why in the world did I do this? You may look at the fellow who put you in this predicament and said, who are you and why did you do this to me? It is very real. There's no dismissing how real it is. But Jesus says the joy completely replaces all of that. The joy isn't a substitute for something else. The joy literally transforms the pain to a level that the pain is forgotten. And what's there in its place is godly joy. The woman and her remembers her pain no more. Because the birth of the child, the joy of the child, has transformed her in such a way that she's not the same person she was before. 2 Corinthians 5 says that in Christ we're a new creation. We literally become someone different. Who we were before is gone. Those sins are forgiven. That person doesn't exist anymore. Now, we can say, well, I'm not really worth it, and I'm going to go back and I'm more comfortable being that person again, and we can relapse into our old life. But in reality, that's not what God wants for us. When, when we accept Jesus as our Savior, we are transformed as every bit as much as this pain is transformed to joy. See, all of us can relate to this example that Jesus gives us because we all make choices and decision, decisions in our life that cause us pain and sorrow. None of us is immune to the pain and the sorrow and the anguish and the grief. 
over the consequences of choices we make. Your sorrow or your pain or your anguish may be the result of something you've done or something that someone has done for you or to you. Maybe the result of addiction or pride or arrogance or a million other ways that we've sinned or a million other ways that the world has of hurting us. And all of them are real, whether you chose it or not. But one of the most difficult parts of pain and sorrow is when we're in pain or sorrow or anguish and we realize that we're not free from it even though it's someone else's decisions that put us there. And as much as that doesn't seem fair, God has another answer for us. There is a different way. There is more to the story. You don't have to live in that pain. I don't know how many, how many funerals and, and celebration of life services I've done, but I've done a lot in 20 years. Most of them at some point or another want the 23rd Psalm read. Even if we're not much of church-going people, we hear those words in our culture enough, or at least snippets of it, verses of it, that there's some comfort there. There's one of those verses that's really appropriate in the middle of this discussion. Psalm 23, 4, Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Right there in one of the most comforting passages of the entire Bible is this hope. We will walk through the valley of the shadow of death. It isn't a question of whether we're going to or not. Every one of us at some point or another is going to. Maybe a question of when it happens or how often it happens. Every one of us is going to spend time there at one point or another. For most of us, it's a place that we visit a lot more often than we'd ever want to. That valley of the shadow of death takes on a different appearance and we start recognizing it more than we want. Sometimes we get there by our own choice. Sometimes we get there because of the choices of someone else. Somebody else made a bad decision. Someone else sinned and we end up in the valley of the shadow of death and it doesn't seem fair. It doesn't seem right. If God really loved us, why would I be there? Why would I be going through that? But the good news is when we look at that verse, the valley is a place that we walk through. We spend time in the valley of the shadow of death. We visit it. It isn't where we live. Remember what Jesus says? It's just for a little while. Even... The difficulty and the pain of being in the valley of the shadow of death is only for a little while. Why? Because Jesus is with us. And as believers and followers of Him, He promises us that we'll spend all eternity with Him. That pain and that anguish and that sorrow, whatever it comes from, whatever the cause is, is only there for a little while. Just like Jesus promises us in the Gospel of John, David wrote the book of Psalms more than 500 years before that. What is our hope? Our hope is that God is always with us, that Jesus understands that we're never alone. We might feel alone. We might tell God we're not interested. We might walk a long way away. But God is always there. Verse 22, Jesus goes on and He says, So also you have sorrow now, but I will see you again, and your hearts will rejoice, and no one will take your joy from you. See, sometimes I just want Jesus to make my life easier. Anybody else? You know, there's this, really, I'm the only one. I don't believe any of you. Sometimes I just want Jesus, you know, it says, you, you can do any, ask anything in my name, and there's all these things, and I try to call on those, and I want my life easier, because it is not fun right now. Sometimes I just, man, there's got to be a shortcut. There's got to be a way to get through this. 
But I've learned enough, I've grown enough, I've lived enough as a Christian that the really good stuff doesn't show up until after I go through the stuff that I would rather have Jesus rescue me from. I know that's where I'm learning. I know that's where I'm growing. I know that's where where God is cutting off some of the junk I need to get rid of. But man, I wish there was a shortcut. Bible talks in Malachi 3 about something that we call the refiner's fire. It says, He will sit as a refiner and a purifier of silver. So if you happen to be the metal that's in the refiner's fire, that's not a real good feeling. It's not a good place to be. Because a refiner's fire is extremely high temperature. Never done it, but I've read about it. I've watched some YouTube on it. The problem with the refiner's fire is the exact same thing as the strength of the refiner's fire. See, it works like this. A a piece of metal is put in and the heat is turned up and, and that piece of solid metal is turned into a liquid and as the temperature goes up, all of the imperfections in that metal start working their way out. They get separated out and they get cleared away. And what's left is a much purer metal with less defects than what went in. Now, the metal has changed. That isn't the reason, though, that it's put through this procedure. It's changed because it goes from a solid to a molten liquid back to a solid. That's the process. But that isn't even the point. Change is the kind of thing that happens when we switch uh, colors or change channels or add sugar or put on a different shirt. The metal is put through that process of intense heat and goes from a solid to a liquid back to a metal in order that it could be transformed. It's not just changed, it's transformed. Jesus is talking about the joy that we have after the refining process, after the temperature goes up, after it's uncomfortable, after the pain and the sorrow. He's telling them, the disciples, that they may not understand what's waiting for them afterwards while they're in the middle of their difficulties, but if they keep their hearts close to Him, those sufferings are going to be transformed to a joy that cannot be taken away. Remember, God's ways are not our ways. And our sufferings are only for a little while and there's something much greater that lies ahead for those of us who believe in Him. And that sounds like such a great thing. But you may be sitting there going, you know what, but God doesn't understand where I'm at right now. God doesn't understand my situation. God doesn't understand what I'm dealing with. Maybe it's you, maybe it's a loved one, maybe the situation is so immense, so weighty that you can't even see tomorrow. You know, but the fact is, God understands that too. Now, as a, uh, as a point of clarification here, I used this example in a message about four years ago. If you've heard it from me, I apologize. It's good enough to repeat. There was in the 1930s a young woman in Germany. She was a Christian girl from the Netherlands. Her name was Corrie Tenboom. She and her family got in trouble for smuggling Jews and getting them to safety. And they got in a whole bunch of hot water, so much to the effect, uh, the point that they got thrown into concentration camps. Corey actually ended up spending time in three of them. She ended up writing a book called The Hiding Place because of it. She ended up living into the 1980s. She is an example of what we are talking about here. The last concentration camp that she ended up in was Ravensbrück. It was a camp for women. It was a work camp. She and her sister Betsy were there. And she talks about in this book, the book's called The Hiding Place. You can read it. I would highly recommend it. Uh, She talks about when they got there, uh, they were brought to their barracks. And it was just this huge, huge, dark, stinky, 
filthy room. That was where they were going to live. And when they were assigned a place, they literally had to crawl up these small boxes, which is where the women were living. That was considered their room, was just a small box, so small, in fact, that they couldn't even sit up. And they had to climb up the stacks of them and go across. And so you want to talk claustrophobia, this is claustrophobia like you and I can't imagine. They weren't worried about lighting in there. They were worried about housing as many women as they could. And so she talks about climbing up, and as she moved to get to her spot and trying to figure out where it was, they could hear the mice and the rats, and every time you moved, it would drop the dust and the dirt and the filth and the the straw such as they had down to the people below you. And that was where they lived. And she said it was miserable. And and the moment that they arrived, she said, we we worked our way into this box, which is my word for it, um, where they were going to call home until they came out in the morning and were given a little bit of nothing for breakfast and put to work all day and sent back at night. And she said, the first thing I noticed is there was something that began stinging uh, my legs. And she realized, great, we've got fleas. So not only in the middle of all the rest of this stuff do they have these horrific conditions, they had fleas to deal with as well. And she and her sister Betsy just kept saying, you know, we just got to be thankful we're still alive. And Betsy says, you know, well, we got to say thank you to God. Give thanks in all circumstances. Corey, let's keep giving thanks. So they kept giving God thanks. And one of the things they found out after being there for a while was that the guards didn't bother their group. And so they, they were able to actually have a Bible study of sorts. They were actually able to, to bring God into this, this horrible place. And then at night they would hear the screams and the, the, the horrible sounds from the other women because the guards would be coming in and doing the things that horrible men do to women who they are responsible for. And she said, we knew exactly what was going on, but we were dealing with our own things. It wasn't until the end of her time there and her, her sister Betsy ended up not making it. Corey got out and they found out, she, she asked one of the guards, why in the world nobody ever came into their barracks? Why did you leave us alone to do Bible study? Why did you not come in and assault any of us? Why did you leave us alone? You know what, of course, the guards said, right? They had fleas and they didn't want them. Give thanks in all circumstances, even thank God for the fleas. Corey and her sister understood that the joy that follows is far greater than whatever the present circumstances might be. Give thanks to God in all circumstances, even in the worst of things, because it's only going to last for a little while. I have to keep reminding myself of that because I want what I want. Even what I want might not be good for me. I want what I want. It's who we are as people, and what we need to learn is that that is sinfulness. Because I also know that God wants nothing less than His very best for me. And what God wants for me is to have a heart that's filled with nothing less than His joy, and that's what God wants for you too. I know that because God sent His only Son, Jesus. Not just for me. God sent His only Son, Jesus, for you as well. So that we wouldn't need to spend our lives living in the hopelessness of our own sin. That we wouldn't just have to hope that tomorrow would be a better day. We could know because of Jesus that it will be. See, the joy that Jesus offers, it isn't a substitution for another feeling. It isn't just a replacement. Happiness, sorrow, anger, fear, they're all emotions. They're emotions that are subject to change quickly, often, and without notice. Joy, on the other hand, isn't an emotion. Joy is a deeply seated knowing that as a Christian, as a believer, everything is in God's hands. And even the worst of moments, the worst of situations, are only there for a little while. Joy is a way of living, of thinking, of being, that comes from something deep within us, 
And it's important that we know that godly joy isn't a substitution for sorrow or pain. See, we're real good at substitutions. If we don't like how we feel, we change it. Maybe we change it with drugs, or maybe we change it with alcohol, or maybe we change it with a whole lot of other things that we know are destructive, but at least we're not having to feel that thing we don't want to feel, right? So we take pain and we substitute it for something else that only brings us more pain. But with joy, there's transformation that can only be brought about by Jesus. There is no cheap substitution involved. Ezekiel 36.26 says, And I will give you a new heart. And I will give you a new spirit, and I will put with uh, I will give and a new spirit I will put within you, and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh, and I will give you a heart of flesh. It's that heart of stone that causes us to come up with our own cheap substitutes. It's that heart of stone. It's that heart of sin in us that says I'm going to take a bad situation and I'm going to feel momentarily better, knowing that it's only going to get worse. Jesus says, that situation will pass and I will fill you with joy. I will transform you in the process. That new heart that Ezekiel is talking about is a result of refining. It's a result of the price that Jesus paid with His death on the cross for our sins. That new heart that He's talking about is a heart of godly joy. So what happens when we find ourselves in the valley of the shadow of death? Don't run away from it. Don't run away because you know what? You can't fix it on your own. I once heard a message at a funeral. A guy had, uh, I've talked about this before as well. He was talking about his mom and he said, you know, the thing that I learned to respect about my mom more than anything else, she never hurried her way through a season of life and she never shortened a season of life. If it was bad, she lived through it. If it was good, she enjoyed it. Mom just lived for the moment and gave God thanks for everything. And I think that's someone who understands joy. So if you happen to be passing through the valley of the shadow of death, don't run and look for a quick and easy solution because life is pressing in and the pain and the sorrow feel overwhelming. It will only be for a little while. And if you put your trust in God, He will refine you through the process and you will come through that valley with His joy, not because of you or anything that you did, but because His joy will be in you and it will never be taken away. And how do we do that? How do we know that that's possible? Well, because God promises that. Can we understand what that is outside of a relationship with Jesus? We cannot. Sin is when we keep trying to fix it on our own. Salvation is we realize the only fix is Jesus. Until you realize that you are never going to put your life back together on your own, and until you realize that the only hope you truly have in this life and for the next is putting your faith and hope and trust in Jesus and His death on the cross, and His resurrection from the grave. When you do that, we realize that things only happen for a little while and we can be filled with joy no matter what. Why? Because Jesus promises that we will see Him again, along with all of our loved ones who go before us, who also put their faith and hope and trust in Him. And what's the point of that? The point of that is that is joy that not even death can steal from us. That is joy that fear can't take away. That is joy that sorrow can't wash out. That is joy that anguish or pain or suffering can't overcome. When we understand that the joy that we really have is bought for us by Jesus and His death on the cross, that joy lasts forever. Let's pray.
God, it's hard for us to understand when we're in the middle of difficult times that the day will ever come when we will be happy again. But God, nowhere in this passage, nowhere in any of those verses did you talk about happiness. You talk about pain. You talk about sorrow. You talk about suffering. You talk about the valley of the shadow of death. But you don't talk about happiness. What you talk about is trusting in you and having all of those things transformed into joy. We content ourselves with being happy, but that's not what you want for us. You want for us to understand so personally what Jesus did in His death and resurrection that it may make us happy, but it fills us with joy. God, help us to be people who understand that even the darkest of days are only there for a little while, but the joy that we have from You can never be taken away and last for eternity. In Jesus' name, Amen. Uh, at the risk of preaching another sermon, let me break it down like this, because I'm thinking maybe some of the guys are still thinking, I just can't get past that childbirth thing. Here's the deal. I love to eat, and I am not opposed, especially when I get a really good dessert, I am not opposed to licking my plate, even in public. (laughs) My family is not fond of that. Friends who eat out think I'm crazy. But here's the deal. Satan is waging a war with you. And what Satan wants to do is to convince you that his cheap substitutions are every bit as good and a whole lot easier than godly joy. Godly joy is getting the whole dessert. Satan's substitutions are licking somebody else's plate. They're fake. They're false, they're not real, and they might not be good for you. When you think about it, why do we do the things that we do that we know are not good for us? Why, why do we eat too much? Why do we turn our backs on other people? Why do we drink too much? Why do we take drugs? Why do we, why do we, why do we? Be, because we think that we have a right and we deserve it and we want to feel happy. Am I right? That's Satan's way of saying, just lick somebody else's dessert plate. What God really wants is for you to have a joy that cannot be taken away, that lasts forever. And unfortunately in America today, Satan has convinced us that they're so much the same that why bother? They're not. They're not even close to the same. And so when Jesus talks about joy that can't be taken away, and putting our faith and hope and trust in Him because even the difficult things are only for a little while. What Jesus is really saying to you is He wants you to have a joy that no matter what the circumstance, you don't lose hope. Because hope in Jesus equals joy from Jesus and joy from Jesus equals hope in Jesus. And Satan can't touch that. 